Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in Season 10. Our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my god, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. The Green Mile is over. Oh, God. Sometimes the Green Mile seems so long. You think if a man sincerely repents on what he'd done wrong, 
that he might get to go back to the time that was happiest for him and live there forever. Would that be what heaven's like? I just about believe that very thing. John Coffey, you have been condemned to die in the electric chair by a jury of your peers, sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. Questions? Do you leave the light on after bedtime? I know violent men. I deal with them day in and day out. There doesn't seem to be any real violence in him. Until he kills a couple of little girls. John Coffey is a murderer. I don't think he did it at all. Take my hand, both. You see for yourself. You're talking about a miracle. I do not see God putting a gift like that in the hands of a man who would kill a child. I dreamed of you. We found each other in the dark. Like he dropped out of the sky. Miracles are funny things. You never know when they're going to happen. And when they happen in a place like this, that's the most unbelievable miracle of all. This is the story of a miracle. That happened here, where I work. On the Green Mile. The Green Mile, Andy. Uh, we're following up on our King Darabont uh, number one last week of the Shawshank Redemption, uh, the movies uh, d- written and directed by uh, Darabont, uh, adapted from Stephen King stuff. And uh, I say stuff because this was not a single book originally, right? This was the serial. Correct. Uh, it was released serially. It was, yeah. I haven't read it. You have read it? I did. I read oh, it when it came out. Um, actually, a buddy of mine uh, told me, he's like, you have to check this out. It's so cool that he's doing it this way. Because, yeah, Stephen King wanted to release it in that old method where a book would be released serialized. And, like, every month, a new chapter would be published. And so, over the course of six weeks, you would get a new, you'd go to the store and pick it up. And they were super cheap because it was only a tiny little book and um you'd get like a chapter and so the first one was the two dead girls and then the mouse on the mile coffee's hands the bad death of edouard delacroix night journey and coffee on the mile so those were the six chapters released from march 28th 1996 to august 29th 1996 and was it for you was it a good read you remember uh liking it I remember liking it quite a bit. The one thing that I think came of when when you get to the end and you feel how the whole thing played because of the way it ended up getting released, I did find that it felt episodic because it was just because it really was like chapters like you have first it's focused on this thing and now we're focused on the mouse and now we're focused on this. And that really came across in the book. And when I saw the film, I did feel a little bit, you know, there is this episodic nature to the way the story kind of unfolds. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear in the movie to me, too, even that I didn't read it. It does feel episodic to me. And I think it ties together well um, at the end of our Green Mile story. Um, Is it built in the book with the flashback? Uh, yes. In fact, we have my recollection is we have a little bit more of that because I think it actually it it's possible it starts that way 
in every book or in every uh, piece, in every serialized book. Okay. We're getting a piece of him in that period because there's more going on there. We have an orderly who is very much kind of of the Percy type of character who is kind of abusing the seniors in this particular senior center. And over the course of the book, he seems to have it out for Paul. And by the time you get to the end, Elaine kind of puts him in his place. And it very much kind of a similar sort of thing where she, like Percy in the past, she reveals to him, hey, I have, you know, some of my my family are high up in the uh, in the political system here in whatever yeah. state they're in. And, you know, we can easily get you kicked out of here. See, that that feels like a great parallel, right? That feels like we're going to mirror the experience and now we're going to put, um, you know, we're going to put our protagonist who has experienced all of this in his past life. We're going to put him in now. We're going to change his perspective. And now he's going to be essentially an inmate in this in this home. And we're going to see kind of how things play out for him. And, and there there is a lesson thematically in that, you know, history teaches us nothing repetition kind of experience. And I think King does that really well. And whenever he you know, I haven't read all of his stuff, but whenever he plays with time, he usually does it with to great effect that is lost i think for me in this movie and in fact i hate it i hate it with a white hot passion old tom hanks is it's unwatchable for me unwatchable and i hate it now when you say old tom hanks you're not talking about tom hanks in makeup you just mean the, I the not, character right. old paul edgecombe old paul edgecombe Right. Yeah. I Interesting. Hate it, and I love the rest of the movie. I think the movie should have lopped off the first and last 10 minutes, tell us the story, and get out. Get out. I don't need exposition junction at the end where he explains the life transference nonsense and little old mouse. I don't need it. It's stupid. It's stupid. I hate it. Well, I think you're wrong. I think <laughs> all of that works really well. In fact, I, I love how you get that sense of this place that this person is in and he looks at it as a sort of penance because of what he did because he had to be the one who basically put uh, John Coffey to death and now he looks at it as this penance you know he's living af past everybody he lo knows and loves they're all dying before he is and it's as he says it's like you know this punishment that he has from God for killing one of his miracles and I think that that's a really interesting way to look at that character and to see even though he was doing what he had to do as part of his job and he had found that John was innocent John kind of also said you know I I get it you you have to do this it, and and whatever uh it's it is this interesting way to kind of take that character and and I don't know kind of I, I for me I found a sense of closure by having that I mean yes it is that flashback structure that can be annoying at times and so I get it but for me, I think that it actually helps the story because you kind of see how all of this plays out. But see, I don't need it. I don't need it because I think we already have the redemption scene in the primary story. We already have John get letting him off the hook because he so clearly, Paul so clearly goes and asks him, I don't know what to do here. Like, I am awash at sea and I need you to tell me what you want. If you want me to let to to accidentally leave the doors open and have you just run into the field, I'll let you do it because you are an instrument of, you know, his great work. And John tells him, he already tells him, you're off the hook, man. You're off the hook. It's okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm tired. And I'm done. And that 
is such an incredibly powerful sequence for me. And by the end of that, with the showering of sparks and when he puts the St. Christopher back around Coffee's neck as he's dead on the gurney, that all of that is the end of the story that I needed and felt completely fulfilled. Going back to the future uh, just takes away from my interpretation. This is a rare case, Andy, where I think I want a less clear ending in the movie than it is given to me. This gives me essentially the Pete Wright ending. It is so clear and everything's tied up with a little bow on it. And I didn't, I don't like it. That's weird. Uh, well, and see, that's, that's so strange because I mean, I, yes, coffee gives him that. It's like, you know, it's okay. It's right. You know, it's going to put me at peace, like all that sort of stuff that he says in that particular moment. But I, what we get at the end is, there's actually more to it. It's not just the fact that coffee is, is, you know, says it's okay. I, I, I know you have to go through this. It's not your fault. I'm just going to do it. But it's the fact that there is still a problem that, that it just intrinsically of Paul having to do this. And now because he's the guy, it's like, I don't know. It's almost like this penance. And, and I think that that's, that's the interesting thing that even though it was okay with coffee, yada, 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 we're getting this to this place where it's, you know, it wasn't okay with God is basically what's happening. And I, I think that that's really interesting because he is now in this place where he has to live out the end of everything. And I, I don't know. I just find that uh, I find it strong the way that that we have the ending this way. And he's he's left old and lonely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that is in so much of the book or, or so much of the movie is, I mean, it is a story of, you know, good and evil condemnation and salvation and and what really is salvation, right? Even with this sort of explicit permission in the jail cell at the end of Coffee's life, nobody is saved, right? We have justice. Justice is absolutely served, but nobody is saved. The bad guys, Coffee takes care of the bad guys in his own special superhero way, but nobody is saved. No, exactly. Yeah, they all it, it's it, and it's the system. It's a systematic, you know, kind of, or systemic way that everybody really ends up kind of finding their own punishment. Now, my understanding is so there there is a, a lot more that goes on in the main Green Mile storyline uh, around race and stereotypes. And here we have Coffee, who is a he, he's threefold condemned, right? He's a black man. He is pegged as a murderer, but he's also a black murderer and he's a black murderer of white girls. And uh, that creates uh, an explosive sort of conflict in this time and space that that King is is writing in. Can you do you have any recollection of how the film sort of um, streamlined that storyline? My understanding is there's just a lot more of that in the book. I don't recall. I mean, it's it, it, I read it when it came out. That was yeah, you know, know it's a long time, ago. You know, twenty five years. You're ago, an old, so. older guy. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, Yeah, I I don't really remember. I just remember that uh, largely my recollection of the book, I mean, is is just remembering that there was more in the uh, senior center at at the end of the book. I I don't remember as much going on. Okay, um, the additional stuff in the story. Did you find something about it? There was much more in and around the humanity of the legal system. Right. That that my understanding is uh, Wild Bill as a young white man was actually given another like a retrial and a stay of execution and that there was this whole sort of story around him and what he was able to get as a result of his privilege 
not called privilege at the time, of course, but but as a result of just his, you know, who he was, even though he was a horrific criminal and murderer. And once the truth comes out that Coffee was not exonerated and they didn't even give time or attention to the idea of a retrial for coffee because he was a black man and that there was there was a, a sort of a litany on this is where we're from we're from a place that does not give time to negroes uh in trouble and he's already he's convicted he might as well be dead already even though he's waiting on death row and so that is uh, i think something that you know from my perspective as uh, a white guy it's it, it, an illuminating bit of the story that i uh, i feel like was rightfully excised from the movie because it's already long. But I, I found on examination of the themes of the film, I, I feel like I missed it a little bit. I missed that piece of it. I wanted a little bit more. It leans so much more heavily on the uh, the mysticism in the movie. And uh, I, I think it would have been served or it could have been served by exploring uh, more clearly some of the, the racial issues. Well, and that's interesting because, you know, there have been a lot of uh, conversations about this film fitting into that magical Negro stereotype that well, uh, he I is literally a magical Negro. He, yeah, Andy. exactly. Spike, <laughs> Spike Lee. I mean, he coined the term in 2001 or he popularized the term really um, as he was kind of touring colleges in uh, 2001 and he started talking about it a lot and because he was very frustrated that hollywood keeps telling these stories i mean this was right after the legend of bagger vance and the green mile had both come out both of which he said had super duper magical negroes in them yeah. <laughs> and and he was very frustrated that this is uh this is still something that was happening and you know stephen king has been called out a few times on this um the stand which was i mean it was earlier before people were talking about it quite so much and then this which really i think kind of hit that turning point when things started saying you know yeah. what let's stop using this stereotype it's getting a little ridiculous because you know people would bring up things like ghost and uh you know there were characters in uh what dreams may come and the family man and mm -hmm. and things like that where it, it is this this is this character that's less concerned about their own person as they are everyone else in the story and and trying to help. I mean, it certainly is true in uh, Legend of Bagger Vance, where, you know, he appears, uh, Will Smith's character appears and just wants to help Matt Damon with his golf. And that's yeah. like, really yeah, right. Thank, thank goodness doing. there is this yeah. black man who can redeem the white man. When you talk about themes of redemption, when I guess, slavery is still a thing. And yeah, yeah it's, right. It's like, <laughs> well, that's a weird thing. And yeah. same thing here. I mean, granted, Coffee is, you know, I mean, he's in pr a prison situation. As we find out, he didn't actually do it. He is innocent. But it also, I mean, that end also sets up more of this emphasis of this magical Negro element mm -hmm. that here he is, this, 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 you know, giant of a man who is also kind of a, uh, you know, I think you could kind of look at uh, Lenny, the character from Mice uh, of Mice and Men. Um, you know, he kind of has that he's not so smart right he, and so i think there are a lot of elements that we're putting into this particular black character that kind of you know he he seems like otherwise i mean the film starts we're looking at a, a chain gang as they're right. digging up a field which I, I mean instantly that was how we started the film and I'm like that's interesting that that's how we're kicking things off or maybe it's as soon as we go into our flashback you know we start that way but uh you know 
it it just kind of emphasizes the fact that here is this man who it doesn't really matter what his story is. We know nothing about John Coffey. I mean, literally nothing of this yeah. guy, except he appears he's trying to save these two girls and can't. And we realize over the course of the film that that's what he means when he's saying, I couldn't help myself. I tried to I tried to take it back. I tried but to I couldn't. take it back. Yeah, we realize what he's talking about as he realized he has these powers. But when you hear him saying that, it doesn't come across that way when you find him with these two dead girls. And and so, like, that's where we meet him. And we never get any story of this person. And so I totally see Spike Lee's point. It's like yeah. this is a film where it's like there is no care at all for giving us any sense of who John Coffey is, other than the fact that he is here to uh, to kind of help these people on the mile and to kind of, uh, you know, get get things taken care of. And it's okay if he has to die because he's there to help them all. It's, it's totally right there. And the more you think about that, the more frustrating the film can be. I still enjoy watching the film. I, I think it's a great film. I think there's really strong performances all the way through, but looking at it through that uh, prism can make this a very frustrating watch. Well, and that's why I wanted to go back a little bit to the themes in the book, because I feel like it does a little bit of a disservice of this as an adaptation if you don't look at at what was what King was trying to do in the source material, right? It feels like leaning so heavily on the mysticism part, it, it the, the magical Negro part, uh, does a disservice to some of the legal mechanics and cultural mechanics that maybe King was trying to, to um, explore. And that, I think, is unfortunate. Looking at it as a movie, it's a it's a white man salve. Right? Just, yeah, right. It sure does make me feel good at the end, but I absolutely get it. And I think uh you know, maybe that's some of why I I feel the way I do about this movie today in 2021 and, and you know, watching sort of the the cultural fabric change around us right now and over the last five years. Um this movie in that light maybe doesn't hold up quite so well. Yeah, yeah. I think it does make it a little more uh, difficult to talk about these days. Let's let's pivot then to the death penalty, right? This movie takes place on death row. This is, uh, they. I think he creates, Darabont and, and can create a, a, a really lovely sort of culture in and around death row. And um, uh, it's a, it's a <laughs> as small lovely as one could create as lovely as one could row. create. Right. Right. Um, it is uh, it's an organism. It's sort of a self-healing organism. You can see it struggling with these viruses that are introduced in the form of wild bill and, and, um, and Percy. And, um, and, and you can, and then we make a bit of a judgment on the humanity and inhumanity of the electric chair, which I think is, is fascinating in the death of, of Dell. Um, uh, what's your what, how how do you feel on some of these elements in the film? How well does it pick at you? It's it's not designed like Dead Men Walking, perhaps, where you know we're we're contemplating the sense of taking a person's life who had taken a person's life. This is a film that's less about the complexities of the death row system. Like we we're not looking at or 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 um. The life of David Gale. That's another one that's that's looking very specifically at at the prison system and and death row and you know what happens when you execute somebody who actually was innocent. There are films that look at this system as more specifically like uh, you know the the positive and negative of death row and you know 
is is there justice when you're actually just doing exactly what this you know guilty party did? I don't think that this film is doing that quite so much as just looking at you know this situation where we have these guards who I mean, you know, they've taken this job where, I mean, what their job is to do is to, as Paul says to Percy time and time again, we are here to talk to the inmates, not yell at them. We are here to make them feel feel comfortable at this particular point in their life as they're getting ready to be have it ended for them. And, you know, so I think that there's an interesting and constantly looming sense of uh, kind of um, sadness in in kind of the tone here because i mean you look at uh i mean maybe not uh delacroix's face so much but certainly we see it when we're looking at graham green's character bitterbuck he he just you know he has a sense of uh sadness with him uh, all the time you know and and we don't really know anything about him as a character but he's here on death row and honestly sadly i mean i love graham green i love seeing him in films his character is clearly written to the story just so we can see how an execution is supposed to happen. So when Delacroix happens, we go, oh, that was why this was so actually horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the point is, it, it's a place of sadness. And I think that's what that's an interesting element of the story that I, perhaps it's more about kind of life and death than it is about the complexities of the death row system. Delacroix's death is, I think, important to the film and to the the sort of culture that we're exploring here. And that is how easy it is, one, for something to go wrong and for, in this case, sadistic guards to kind of get in the way and and, uh, exercise their own justice. Um, But also, as things go wrong... The people that are there to sort of, for lack of a better word, celebrate the execution of this criminal can't watch it and they run fleeing from it. Right. And and there is something to exploring the balance of like the our, our willingness to accept what we have done to to people as a society to to take criminals and then put them to death, but not be able to to hang with our the the repercussions of or the consequences of those choices. And uh, I think that's important in this movie because you know when you're talking about redemption and salvation the populace plays a role, right? No one is redeemed from this. When we get in and we hear the the dad scream uh Sadler uh scream kill him twice. Um that is not a redemptive or, or a saved statement, right? That's a statement of vengeance. And uh, we, as the audience, are in the know of uh, about, you know, the, the, the truth of the case. Uh, they are not, and there is no mechanic to get them out of the state of, of vengeance. And I, I find that really powerful, right? That, that final execution, now that we've seen a, quote, good one and a bad one. Now we're getting to the worst one. It's going to be in the light. We're taking off the black um, uh, cloth from his face and we're going to see it happen and we have to live with it. We have to live with those consequences. And um, and and so I, I really appreciate that in the movie. I appreciate that 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 exists and it's not we're not litigating it at all. We're just feeling it. And uh, and that's okay too, right? It, it doesn't have to be a Susan Sarandon in the movie to actually make it uh, make it a powerful message. No, yeah, right. I think that's that's very true. 
Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that is perhaps where we get more of that type of thing is in the actual executions themselves with the with the people watching. And you get a sense of kind of like the the way that these play out where people come and watch, you know, the people who have lost their loved ones to this particular person are there to see them, you know, put to death and other politicians and whoever it is who attends these. But you get lines like that. And it's it's it, that's that's, I think, where we see more than anything, kind of that sense of how the system operates in anything. Yeah. And if anything, I think something that was interesting that you kind of glean from it is that these are guards like he may have found out through, I mean, granted, it's through magical means and all that, but he may have found out that uh, that coffee is innocent, but he's just a guard like he is in no place, even even the warden right They're in no place to to kind of strike up you know, the system and say, hey, you know what, this is an innocent man on on death row. We need to look at the system and everything like that's not what they do. That's not their job. And all they that's why really Gary do, Sinise is in the movie for all of three minutes. <laughs> right. Just to kind of point that out. But yeah, yeah, it's I mean, the job's been done. All their job to do is to guard them and to uh, march them down the green mile to the electric chair when it's time. To the point, uh, to, to uh, just kind of following up on that, though, I, I did want to bring this up as it ties into kind of this, the whole death row thing, and to the the magical Negro bit that we were talking about. Stephen King actually did respond to this. He said he saw this as a racial allegory. And this, I think, goes to your point revolving around Wild Bill. He said the only reason that he made John Coffey a black man was because of the time, place, and setting of the novel and the crime for which Coffey was convicted. It was the only way to leave no doubt that he would have been sentenced to death to death. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. And to that point, uh, in the book, there is a passage uh, where Paul is talking about the phone on the wall, that there's always this phone and the cutaways to the phone. Uh, everybody is waiting for the governor to stay the execution. And in the book, apparently, he says quite he says, in all of my career of doing this, the phone has never rung. There is never that sort of last minute salvation uh, of, you know, of these prisoners who are being put to death. Um, it just doesn't happen. And again, a statement on time and place, a statement on, you know, the humanity and inhumanity of the death penalty system. Um, you know, all of that feels like is mixed up in there. Yeah, right, right. So do we want to talk a little bit about the Green Mile in context of kind of Stephen King and, you know, what they call like the Stephen King multiverse. I'm very excited about this, Andy. I know that it has really set you off <laughs> on a journey, uh, a magical journey yourself. And it did not do the same for me. And I feel like because I never read all of the books in the uh, Gunslinger, uh, I feel like I'm <laughs> ill-equipped to talk about it. So please... You don't How does have the to, Green Mile fit? You don't have to, nothing has to connect to the gunslinger. I mean, that's what... I just assume everything has to connect to the gunslinger. No, that's because, my, I mean, oftentimes they just all take place in Maine or whatever, you know, yeah. and it's like, and that's something we didn't talk about last week um, with our guests, but in the Shawshank Redemption, this, I mean, this was specifically in the book, not in the movie, but Andy Dufresne, he is actually the banker for Dusander, who is um, the the Nazi character in Apt Pupil. So oh my God. there's a connection in those two stories. That's okay. really the only connection um, that Shawshank has. I mean, the prison itself is mentioned a couple times in some of the other books. And I 
in in the book it's possible Shawshank is mentioned, um, but I don't think so. The only things that I can find are they're very small because this is very much separated from Stephen King's world because I mean it takes place in Louisiana. Largely, it's it's not connected. The only real thing that people talk about is the fact that the power that coffee seems to have is very similar to the shine. Okay, so t- for those who don't know, talk about the shine. What is the shine? Well, it it is a. I mean, there's a variety of different kind of ways that it uh, it seems to come out, but largely, I mean, it, it really came out in the Shining, the book where you know characters could. Uh, they would sometimes, you know, see ghosts and everything, and they would connect connect to these other powers, be able to kind of communicate and all this sort of stuff. And Coffee's power, the way that he is able to kind of read emotions and kind of connect to people the way he does, especially like during Delacroix's uh, execution, the way that he um, kind of um, sucks the poison out of, of uh, we see him do it several times throughout the movie. And... That's something that in the book, Dr. Sleep, not in the film, there is a point where uh, Dan Torrance's character, he actually basically does the same thing. He kind of takes this in from a particular character in the book and then holds it for a very long time. And his character is kind of declining in health as he's going through this until he finally releases it. And I mean, it, it's, it works exceptionally in the book, um, but it's a very similar thing that was done here. And so I couldn't help but think that that was something that uh, King was kind of patterning and kind of a, another element to say, yeah, coffee, he shined. So, I mean, that's that's about it. Not a lot. Yeah, of OK. Things. All right. So there is no reference to a green mile anywhere else. There's what we're saying. No. All right. So that's the Stephen King connection. OK. The the whole nature of I we, I want to talk about the the good and evil bit as um, demonstrated through uh, our our friend Wild Bill Sam Rockwell is extraordinary in everything he does. Have we said that recently? Um, probably not often enough. I mean, seriously, Sam Rockwell. Um, I I feel like his exploration of evil as chaos. I mean, he is the he's sort of the uh, the Joker character, right? Like he comes in with very little history and just is the chaotic element until that one exchange that we have between coffee and Bill when he grabs his arm. He's already sedated, but for some reason he becomes lucid and is able to, when touching coffee, um, exchange thoughts uh, and and uh, have some sort of a psychic connection where he shares with coffee all the bad that he's done. And we have another flashback within this flashback back to Bill painting the house and, and his work with uh, Klaus Detrick and his family eating dinner and then eventually kidnapping the girls and using the girls love of each other to keep them quiet, uh, threatening them. If you make a noise, I'm going to kill your sister. If you make a noise, I'm going to kill your sister. Um, And then he takes them off and, and, and kills them. I think that exploration of what evil looks like as just this sort of chaotic uh, experience on the cell block is uh, is fascinating. And the way he is ultimately, you know, ex- uh, purged from the system feels to me, it goes back to that organism pushing out a virus, right? It is an unclear uh, resolution to his character. As clear as it is to have somebody shot, it was unexpected and 
uh, in that way, I think a little bit delightful. How'd you feel about the mechanics of giving the tumor bugs to Percy to then mind control him and kill Bill and then have the tumor bugs purged from Percy? I found it incredibly gratifying. I mean, Percy is such an unlikable character. And I just have to say, Doug Hutchinson mm-hmm. is stellar as Percy. I, mm-hmm. I I hadn't seen him in anything big before this or after. Well, I mean, he's been in like little bit parts and stuff, but I haven't really seen him do much. But like this role, I, it just like blew me away. And the way that that whole scene plays out when they come back and 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 coffee had been holding it in and then he finally like releases it all into percy i mean it's horrifying but you see what's happening and you're like oh wow i i didn't see that coming and i didn't think that he was actually going to do something to wild bill that that was a great surprise to me because it seemed like he was just infecting percy and that was kind of the end of it but then when percy gets down to wild bill's cell and, and at first you're thinking okay so are these the little you know poison gnats i'll call them are they going to fly out and go into wild bill now and Mm -hmm. both of them will be kind of taken with some sickness or something only to see that percy kind of you know pulls his gun out and shoots wild bill it was really interesting and i I mean i don't know i just i found it incredibly satisfying because i mean if if stephen king really knows how to do something well it's create characters that you just hate you know that you're just they're such bad people and you're just like ah we've got to get to a point where there's some comeuppance because these characters are just awful awful beings and you certainly see that as as this is all played out and uh yeah and then percy ends up going to briar ridge you know just like he had been planning i i don't know i found it satisfying i did too i think it was just uh i think it was fantastic i think the way they built that character and the sort of rage roller coaster that we go on uh kind of with him um and the way in fact we actually start to feel that sort of uh that sort of spark of hope that maybe paul has gotten through to him uh maybe we're going to get to the other side of this and and lessons will have been learned no lessons are learned uh and ultimately things have to have to be resolved through mystical force that same mystical force is at work in the mouse let's talk about the mouse uh, uh the mouse mr. As jingles a, yeah mr jingles as a vessel for goodness and hope and uh and light in on death row Yes, he certainly is that. He certainly is. You know, I, I like the mouse. I think it's cute. Um, it is certainly something that lends to that uh, that nature of the story feeling episodic. Because when the mouse comes, you get that kind of that cute little uh, kind of mouse music. I'll just call it, for lack of a better term. It just it has kind of a cuteness to it. It kind of takes things down and we kind of slow down so we can spend some time with the mouse. And, you know, it's it's really cute. I, I like it. It also slows things down for me. But I think I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't I don't hate it. I think it's an interesting element to kind of have as a part of the story. I do too. Um the the entire mouse narrative when they're standing over the mouse, the the crew, um, Paul and Brutal and uh, you know, the team are standing yeah. down looking at the mouse and looking at it with such wonder the fact that the mouse is sort of adopted by these guards is 
delightful for me. It does not slow it down at all. I could not get enough mouse and the, these like guards feeding the mouse. It just adds a sense of humanity and goofiness to this place where they are that has no humanity or goofiness. And um, and and I really liked it. It does not go so far as to make the the movie in any way a comedy. But it does demonstrate heart, and I think that's a that's an important thing when you also have a movie that demonstrates an electric chair going south and lighting their heads on fire. Um, so I, I found it a good bit of of balance um, that that they introduced this this mouse character, and I think did it well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does lend a sense of humanity to the people here on Death Row, uh, particularly Delacroix. It's uh, I see what King is also doing here because by introducing the mouse, having it become attached to Delacroix and become this little like circus mouse and be so cute. I mean, Delacroix is, you know, he's a criminal. He's obviously done some terrible things. He's on death row. And now we like him because he's attached to this mouse and there's this cuteness. So when he is killed, it's that much harder to go through. Right. And, and, you know, somebody's going to take a, take a whack at the mouse. Right. Yeah. Whether whether or not you fall in love with Delacroix and his use of circus mouse, um, you know, the mouse is at risk just the moment they introduce it uh, in this movie. Well, and, and that's a great surprise, actually, when yeah. all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're having this ten, this moment of conversation about Mouseville and all this sort of stuff. And what are they going to do with him and all this? And then to have uh, Percy come in and crush him at that moment when you're just not expecting it, because Percy's kind of taken a turn for a little while. It just, it was a big surprise. It's like, oh, okay. Yep, we went there. So my cat's was, name is Percy. And everything you oh. just said about Percy really could apply to my cat. I think <laughs> I think my cat's a sociopath. Oh, uh, yes. Probably. And would probably do the same thing to a mouse. Yeah. Just saying. Probably. Um, yeah, it's, it is fantastic. It lo- used, uh, they, they couldn't do it with one mouse. You know stuff about mice. Animals are difficult. Mice also don't live that long. I mean, it could have lived, you know, for the duration of the film production, but they actually had to use 15 different mice because it's hard to train a mouse to do these things. And so it, Which it is took what a lot surprises of surprises the hell out of me. It's hard to train a mouse to do these things. And they found 15 of them that would do no, these things. 15 that would do particular things, I would assume. Like, Crazy. you know, one would kind of probably sit up on its hind legs and look around. One would probably roll the spool. You know, they, they'd find yeah. them to do particular things. Um, but also just as a, a note on mice also, the lifespan of a mouse is not very long. Generally in good lab conditions, when they're really taking care of a mouse, not testing them and everything, a mouse could live up to three years. That's about it. So the fact that because of the power that coffee imbues in this little mouse and it ends up living 60 some years, that's a, a very long lifetime for this little creature. And it makes you wonder by the time you get to the end of the film and you see Paul putting Elaine down and she's, she's at her funeral and he's still walking around. It's like, how long is this guy really going to end up living? Yeah. Right. Because he was 108 in that last conversation. How long do you think Elaine lived after that? Exactly. She was pretty spry sitting at that table. She was. She certainly was. Now, in the book, the mouse does die. Uh, I think, I can't remember if it was before or after Lane, but at least you know, okay, well, the mouse actually did die, so that means Paul will die. But, I mean, yeah. he could be uh, he could yeah. be a couple hundred years old. Ma- uh, it's, uh, you know, magical mouse. Uh, you want to talk about getting it made? You know, I don't have a lot of information about it. Um, I, I, I mean, obviously, Darabont 
had created a strong working relationship with Stephen King by this particular point in time. He had done, I, I don't think we even talked about this last week, but he started off working with Stephen King or working, you know, through Stephen King's stories, we'll say, in the 80s. He was one of the original, as they're called, dollar babies, where, you know, Stephen King would let people make his, uh, his short stories. Um, they would just pay him a buck to license the use of it and they could make one of the short stories. And, generally a lot of rules came along with it. Like it could play at festivals, things like that. You couldn't make money on it. You can't stream them online. Like there are a lot of specific rules that he has about them. And uh, Darabont was, if not the first, one of the first dollar babies that was out there. He actually wanted to do the story, the woman in the room and, uh, and King, you know, I, I again, I don't know if it's the beginning, but he likes this idea of having people only pay a buck. So Darabont paid him a buck. He made this short film, The Woman in the Room, which is a, you know, it's a kind of a touching, emotional story about a woman who is dying of cancer and the, her son who's debating if he should just kind of like overdose her on pills to put her out of her misery. And so it's kind of this dark little story. You can you can find it online to watch on YouTube and stuff. Um, and and Stephen King was really impressed with that. And so much so that eventually, like in the late 80s, that along with another short or two were released on video. Very rare for that to happen with these dollar babies. Um, but because of the success of that, and Stephen King says it's still his favorite dollar baby that has been made. And there at this point have been, you know, dozens and dozens of them. But that's where they first... Uh, came to know each other and and he said he really wanted to adapt Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and Stephen King said he could and in fact he paid him five thousand uh, dollars for the for the rights to it and Stephen King never cashed that check and when he actually got it made he actually gave him um, gave him the check back and said you know here's some money you can use if you need to uh, extra money to help get it made or something like that which I thought was kind of cool but anyway that working relationship really started there in the 80s. And it was only because Darabont really started as a writer. I mean, he went through uh, working on some of the Nightmare on Elm Street scripts and and a lot more kind of horror script writing that, I mean, it fit perfectly in kind of the King realm, that type of storytelling. And that's what eventually led him to being able to do the Shawshank Redemption. And now, I mean, he was in a place where he was pretty able to kind of pick and choose what he wanted to do. And he really wanted to um, work with King again and, and came around to, uh, to adapting this, which the book started coming out shortly after a couple years after uh, Shawshank. But in the meantime, he had been, uh, I don't know what else he had been doing. I think that he had largely just been doing, he might've been doing some uh, young, uh, young Indiana Jones Chronicles. I think he was writing some of that as he kind of, uh, led up to this. He, you know, Darabont is not a prolific filmmaker. I mean, he's only made four films, three of which we're talking about in the series because those are the Stephen King adaptations. And so it's strange that he's been so sparse in his filmmaking, but I think he gets involved in a lot bigger projects like The Walking Dead, which he was involved in for, um, well, developing a, it. A season, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the first season, developing it, writing a few episodes um, before he was, you know, taken off of the show for i don't know all sorts of reasons behind the Com scenes complicated sure. yeah yeah exactly but i mean you look at the stuff that he wrote at, at the beginning of his career a nightmare in elm street 3 dream warriors the blob the fly 2 
I, I just feel like he's got that sense of storytelling. Oh, and also Shawshank Redemption. He also wrote that same year, the uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Right. So I don't know. I, I find him to be a really interesting, thoughtful storyteller and he fits with this world. And starting with Shawshank Redemption, he had been working with Rob Reiner's company, um, which is Castle Rock Entertainment, which I mean, Rob Reiner created Castle Rock Entertainment after he had such success with Stand By Me. And Castle Rock, of course, is a fictional town that Stephen King created. So it all kind of comes together. And here we are with the second film that Darabont did under the Castle Rock Entertainment banner. You know, we should start, we should found a city named Castle Rock and move there (laughs) so that we can complete the Stephen King as he adapts real world around him. Did you watch any of the Castle Rock TV series that uh, that was out for a little while? Castle Rock TV series? Yeah, on Hulu. No. Oh, oh, yeah, I know of it. I didn't watch it. I I did all of, uh, what was the other one with the the town that they couldn't, you couldn't leave the town? Um, Under the Dome? Well, I did watch all of Under the Dome, but there was another one... um, Oh my goodness! I'm. It's gonna drive me batty. I really enjoyed it. There was a lighthouse. Uh, <laughs> there's always there's always a, a lighthouse. TV series? A Stephen it King was, TV series. It was another Stephen King TV series, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it ran for a lot of years. It's she's a she's plays. It's like this FBI agent who goes to this little town and becomes a police officer there. And it's based on his uh, a lot of his little stories. Well, there was Nightmares and Dreamscapes, but that was just short films or short stories. There was another series? Yes. And it, I don't even see it in Stephen King's list of collected works, but I know this was a Stephen King thing. Mr. Well, there's Mr. Mercedes, but it's not that one, is it? No. Because I know that's based on a number of his novels. Ah. <sighs> All right. Well, we should clearly move on, but I'm not done with this topic. Well, we should talk a little bit more about the cast. Yeah. So Tom Hanks. You know, I love him. Urinary issue. Well, and it's funny because you think about the number of times Tom Hanks pees in movies. There are quite a few. And this is one of them. There's certainly a lot of peeing that he gets to do here. Mostly painful. Mostly not fun to have to sit and watch (laughs) because, as he says, he's pissing razor blades, which is certainly nothing no one wants to try. I don't care for it, but he does a great job at it. Man, they nailed the like cold sweat around his forehead. And uh, when he falls down, I mean, if you've ever had any sort of kidney urinary thing going on and you have that experience, falling down on the Green Mile is an okay thing. That is a perfectly (laughs) rational thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, as As we said last week, he was somebody that was kind of in consideration to play um, Andy Dufresne. And so I think that uh, Darabont, he met him, um, I think, after Shawshank, actually. They actually sat and chatted, and he started thinking about him as Paul. And so I think it it makes sense. And initially, they actually wanted Hanks to also play the old version, uh, played by Dabs Greer, who I want to talk about in a sec. But but uh, the makeup test didn't work at all. They didn't buy it. And so they ended up casting someone else, which I think is a smart thing to do. There's nothing that takes me out of a movie more when you see like the um, beautiful mind thing where you see, uh, you know, one of the actors at the end and you're like, oh, I just don't buy your age makeup. It's horrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I also 
I don't think I buy the casting. I, you know, talk it's about one dabs. of those things I end up rarely having an issue with because I know it's a hard thing to find people who look like each other. So I don't, I rarely fault any project with that. I, I think I generally have more of a problem if they try age makeup that I don't, I don't believe. Uh, but anyway, Dabs Greer, this was his last film. He had been an actor who had been around for a very long time. Um, if you were a fan of Little House on the Prairie, you saw him quite a number of times as the Reverend in that particular TV series. Uh, he was, uh, I think, in 76 episodes in that. But also, I mean, he had been acting in TV uh, since the early days back in the uh, the 50s. And in movies, I mean, also, I mean, he back since the uh, the 30s, really popping up in things. And he's one of those faces that I remember seeing in and out of things uh, quite a bit over time. And mm -hmm. I just love his face. And uh, but I think it's particularly Little House that sticks in my mind as uh, as the one I remember the most with his little kind of I don't know. I don't know what they would call that little hat that a reverend would wear back in those days, but kind of that little black hat, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with. I don't I don't think I experienced as much of that show uh, enough to certainly enough to be able to talk about it. Oh. Uh, that was that's lost to me. Yeah, it was it was a show that uh, we regularly watched all the time as kids. So I I grew up on that show. Loved it. David Morris is uh, brutal, is fantastic. I've always loved David Morris. Um, Love him. We have talked about him far too infrequently uh, yeah. i think uh, over the course of the show i just uh, i mean I, 12 monkeys is the only thing i can think of that we've yes. discussed that he was also in but i just love seeing david morris always who is another tall actor let me just say right yeah. now he is very tall and he's, he's we, six is this, four he's six four should we do a quick a height aside right now because this <laughs> oh, no. is this is fascinating first of all they make michael clark duncan look like he's about 18 feet tall they do. They really excel in in creating, like shooting from different angles or whatever they have to do to make him just seem taller than absolutely everybody by a country mile. Um, David Morse is six foot four. Michael Clark Duncan is not the tallest performer here. He is second tallest because James Cromwell is actually one inch, maybe two taller than him. Yeah, Michael <laughs> Clark Duncan is six foot five and a quarter inches. And uh, which I, I, I think is crazy that James Cromwell is actually taller than him. It's like and six, 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 seven. He's six, seven. Yeah. Is that what he's we're saying? Six foot seven. He's six, James Cromwell is six foot seven. Yeah. He towered over Babe. Yeah. Babe right? must have felt like an insect. <laughs> he must have felt like a little pig. Oh, wait. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's funny because they 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 do such a good job of shooting Michael Clark Duncan to just look like he is yeah. so much bigger. In fact, they actually used in production design, they designed things that he would be using to be smaller, much like in the Lord of the Rings films where you like his bed, they actually designed all the beds the same except for his, they actually made smaller. So when he would lie down on it, he it would, would look be like giant. he was that much bigger on it. Yeah. Did, did they make Tom Hanks? Uh, did they use like a child's hand to shake hands? The close up <laughs> on the hands is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right that's a good question that is a good um, question tom hanks I, is is only six feet he is such a small person compared to the rest of these people uh, my my favorite i think little character exchange bit is when um 
David Morris turns around and says, uh, "Boss, you're going to need to get over here. He's a big boy. You're going to need to second guess your uh, uh, second guess getting in the cell with this guy. He's a big boy. Well, he can't be bigger than you." And Morris looks at him and just sort of literally, I mean, the definition of scoffs, yeah. and uh, and turns around and and uh, welcomes um, Duncan into the cell block. It was just great. Could have been Shaquille O'Neal, Andy. Yeah, isn't that a strange thing? I mean, I think what they were doing is thinking, okay, who is a very tall African-American act or person who has been in films? Because I think Shaquille O'Neal had been in Blue Chips, Kazam, Good Burger, and Steel, and Chairman of the Board. So he had been in a few films before he would have potentially been considered for this film. I don't want to, like, armchair what Shaquille O'Neal could have been, but I think Michael Clark Duncan deserves all the kudos that he gets from this movie. Oh, 100%. 100%. And Michael Clark Duncan had been in Armageddon before this. And, you know, I mean, in addition to some other films, uh, we didn't talk about him, but apparently he was one of the craps players in Friday, which I think is interesting. I don't think wow. we even realized that no. at the time. But he had been in bit parts in things like Bullworth. He was the bouncer in Bullworth. And, and he was credited as very cute as Michael Big Mike Duncan. <laughs> But it was Armageddon where he worked with um, Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis actually is the one who mentioned to Frank Darabont, hey, I just worked with this guy. He might be perfect. And that's how that's how it came to be that uh, he was uh, in the Green Mile. It was perfect. It's great. And just sadly, we just have to also point out that Michael Clark Duncan did die at only 54 years old in 2012. Really sad. Really sad. Uh, You know, nice gift that he can be remembered from a performance like this. Absolutely. Uh, James Cromwell is Hal Morris. Uh, he is the warden. And he is, uh, he is great. Uh, very tall, is great. great. And, and sympathetic. I, this is what I love about this performance is that it could have been super tropey. It could have been the guy who uh, n- never comes around. And uh, the the sequence where they break uh, coffee out of of jail and take him to the house without handcuffs or leg cuffs or anything. They just take him in the back of a truck uh, to go help the lady uh, is a a real highlight of the film for me because it shows that there is like there's sympathy, so much sympathy and empathy in grief in what he's going through and that he's able to come around and let this giant of a man into this room with his frail, broken wife uh, it's just magical. It is. It is magical. And Patricia Clarkson as his wife, in a small part, but I think that she was nice to see in there. Yeah, it's it's a very touching uh, pair, the two of them. Uh, and Michael Jeter, national treasure, Michael Jeter. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, David Morse with Twelve Monkeys. Here we have Michael Jeter from Fisher King. I uh, yep. just you know loved his performance there. Love his performance here. He's another person that we lost sadly far too early. Uh, just seeing him do performances like this. I mean, he died in 2003. I, I really enjoyed him. And it was, um, it was great to see him here in this particular role and very awful having to watch him go through what he does when he dies. Yeah, it really is. His, his accent work is terrific. I never yeah. feel like he's broken character. He's just, uh, he was always a, a incredible character performer and, yeah. um, delightful to see him here uh we've already talked about doug Doug hutchison and uh sam reckwell uh obviously terrific but i just want to go through since we're talking about the guards and their heights doug hutchison five foot five and a half so at this point the shortest of all the guards he is and does they do compellingly make him look exactly half as tall as michael (laughs) duncan right 
Uh, really great. Barry Pepper, I mean, he's he's a favorite of mine. I just love seeing him in whatever he pops up in. He's 5'10", another of the guards. And... <laughs> Uh, is this, are we going to do this now? We I told totally him for the, all the guards. It but, has but to be can done. Can we do it for other movies too? Like this is like the or, APPFM <laughs> of performers. Only when there's a height related story. All right. I apologize. But Jeffrey DeMunn, who people should recognize as uh, as a Darabont kind of character. He was the attorney, uh, the defense attorney. Or no, he was the prosecuting attorney. At the very beginning, at the very beginning, Andy yeah. Dufresne, yep. yeah, and so, and then of course, anyone who watched The Walking Dead would have seen him pop up in that as well, and so he's, you know, he's a, a another Darabont regular, five foot nine, five foot nine, yeah. So <laughs> there you go. Okay, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I just, I yeah. also just have to say how funny it is that Barry Pepper plays a character named Dean Stanton. And we also have Harry, Harry Dean, Dean Stanton, Stanton in the film uh, playing the trustee. And it's it's such a small part, but it just, again, reminds me how much I always enjoy seeing Harry Dean Stanton pop up in films. Who we also lost in yeah. 2017. Yeah. Uh, ripe old age of 91. Yeah. He was. Well done, Harry. Yeah. And then last but not least, Bonnie Hunt plays Tom Hanks' wife. And, you know, she's somebody I've always enjoyed. And, uh, but it, again, this is one of those roles that feels like, uh, you know, the wife it, it it's not as interestingly written it just it but it works she does a good job for what well it is. Is she she does a great job for what it is particularly because she's not known as a dramatic performer right i mean she's she is i think known first and foremost as a comedic performer and she's terrific at it but it's nice to see her in a, a role that's a little bit more comedically subdued because she's terrific she is great yeah 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 Certainly has been busy in a lot of animated, like Pixar films, yeah, as a, like the last 20 years. Yeah, yep, a lot yep. of that sort of stuff. So, Who did the camera on this thing? Darabont's crew was, you know, he shook things up a little, little bit. David Tattersall did the cinematography, who, you know, has done a lot of stuff. Also, the same year, was busy on Star Wars Episode One, but certainly a very busy uh, filmmaker and would go on to do The Majestic with uh with Darabont next and uh, I think that was it for the two of them but you know I think that the cinematography looks great I enjoy the look I, you know I have no issues with anything the way it's shot I think that they light it well and they play with the lighting the sparking of the lights and everything yeah. I, I like how all that uh, comes through well and there's a lot of opportunity working with the production design because this was predominantly a set and so they Correct. could do a lot of things with it, right? They could they Absolutely. actually had a lot of flexibility to blow up light bulbs and, and uh, you know, create the beautiful cathedral ceilings. I think what we saw last week, though, in Shawshank, shooting at the real location, uh, is that there were these beautiful Gothic, you know, prisons that evoke the same sort of experience, uh, at least served in this case as a terrific model. But I think they could have done it in a in a cool location without all that flexibility, I think, of being able to just, you know, blow the place up whenever they needed to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It but is it was, beautiful. And it was Terrence Marsh who did the Shawshank uh, we talked about last week, who also mm -hmm. was a production designer on this yeah. film. And that's it. No more films. He pretty much it looks like he retired shortly after the green mile so um yeah no more films after that thomas newman thomas newman On also music. returning to music to work with uh with darabont having worked on shawshank and i mean great music just fantastic music yeah. on Shawshank. I don't like the score as much here. I think it works fine. It's effective for what the story is, but it doesn't stick with me as much as Shawshank did last week. I agree with that. Uh, Shawshank is imminently listenable, and yeah. this one is, I think, more 
forgettable. It's weirdly like what sticks with me from this film with the music is the mouse. Like the dit, 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 like that that's yeah, yeah, the yeah, music yeah, yeah. that sticks with me, not yep. the big emotional things. Yeah. Um so I, I think I think that's strange. And he doesn't end up coming back to work on the next two uh films with um with mm-hmm. Darabont. Uh but Richard Francis Bruce did the editing and I think that again also Shawshank and Green Mile and then again I think that that's it with uh, with Darabont. So it's interesting. He seems to kind of be kind of and maybe it's because he's a filmmaker who just works so irregularly and that hard people to are get busy. the same crew. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know exactly why, but I think the editing is fine here, especially for a film that's three hours. I don't ever feel bored with it. You know, I feel like it's creating a space. It's creating a, a sense of time and uh, it's allowing for the characters. And so I never once felt bored through the duration of the film, even the beginning and end. <laughs> I think it's, I, I think it's, uh, it is a long movie. It, Compared to Shawshank, which was what two and a half, roughly a little about, yeah. I I didn't notice time passing with Shawshank. I never noticed time passing. Yeah. I noticed time. This movie, it feels like I'm making a three hour commitment. It doesn't feel like time is moving more quickly than it is. It doesn't feel. Uh, it, it feels overlong only in the opening ten minutes and closing ten minutes. But when I'm in the experience of the Green Mile, it it feels appropriate. Right. It still feels like a three hour commitment I'm making. I don't lose time in it. I'm aware that it's a long movie. Uh, and I think that's that's notable compared to what we just experienced with Shawshank. And I, I don't think I've ever watched these films quite so back to back. And I just found that I I enjoyed my experience with Shawshank so much more. Yeah, well, uh, it's I, I think it's by far the superior film. That's not to say that this one isn't watchable. It's just I, I feel like they're both. They're kind of just kind of delivering something different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how to do at award season? Yeah, it was a popular film at award season, but more so for the nominations than for the wins. It did have fifteen wins, but thirty-seven other nominations at the Oscars. It had four nominations: Best Picture, but lost to American Beauty. Best Supporting Actor, Michael Clark Duncan, but lost to Michael Caine in The Cider House Rules, which also won for Best Adapted Screenplay, which Darabont lost, and Best Sound, and I think largely because of the execution scene, perhaps, but that one lost to The Matrix. Over at the Golden Globes, Michael Clark Duncan was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He got a lot of the recognition as uh, for this particular film, um, but he lost to Tom Cruise in Magnolia. Over at the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, uh, or the Saturn Awards, this was nominated for Best Action, Adventure, and Thriller Film, and won. And Michael Clark Duncan also won for Best Supporting Actor. And weirdly, Patricia Clarkson was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her very small part as Melinda, who's sick. We really only see in that, uh, mainly in that one scene. And she won. Frank Darabont. <laughs> uh, I know, it's, it's very strange. Frank Darabont was nominated for Best Director, but lost to the Wachowskis for The Matrix. Yeah. And Thomas Newman was nominated for his score, but lost to Danny Elfman for Sleepy Hollow. I can see that. Yeah, I can too. I, I, again, this is it's a strong score in context of the film, but it doesn't stick with me yeah. at all. How about the box office? This movie uh, didn't do all that badly. Well, Darabont got a lot more money for King Number 2. He had $60 million to work with, which is $92.4 million in today's dollars. 
The movie was released December 10th, 1999, where it opened up in the number one spot opposite Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, The Cider House Rules, Cradle Will Rock, and the limited release for Diamonds. It couldn't hold the number one spot after that, though, as the holiday glut just kept pushing it down. But it did still stay in the top 10 for at least 10 weeks. It did go on to earn $136.8 million domestically and $153.9 million internationally for a total gross of $447.7 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $1.9 million, which is really impressive, given its over three-hour length. Very impressive at yeah. three hours. That's crazy. Uh, still not. It's still not Shawshank. I kind of expected going into this series that I was going to put Green Mile. Uh, it's been a lot, lot longer since I had watched uh, Green Mile than Shawshank. And my yeah. memory of it was that I liked it a lot more. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then you did or that you liked it a lot more than Shawshank? That I liked it more than Shawshank. My memory of it was that yeah. this was a slam dunk. That I was well, come according in. to Frank Darabont, not. like this is his best film. It's his uh, for him. He said it was his best filmmaking experience. So he really got a lot out of making this Stephen King. Now, granted, Stephen King's lists always seem to favor the ones that are just released. But when he and he was work do kind of a guest writer and Entertainment Weekly for a time. And I remember when this film came out, he had this at the number one spot over Shawshank. Again, I think it's because it had just come out. But um, it's it's a film I think both of them hold in very high esteem. I think it's a very good translation of the book. I just always end up feeling like it's episodic. I enjoy it. I think it's a strong story. I do think now looking at it through the eyes of that magical Negro, it it's a little harder to kind of stomach some of the the elements in the story. But yeah. I still find it a very emotional ride. I still think that it's exceptionally told. I just, I don't like it nearly as much as Shawshank. Yep. That has become abundantly clear for me. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I think we we should probably take it to the mat. I think we should. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we talked about on this fair show. If you swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flickchart. It should take you straight to the flickchart database where you can add this movie to your list and see how it stands up against ours. All right. First up, we have The Green Mile or Il Postino, The Postman. Um, probably The Green Mile. Yeah. I'm, I'm already I'm at a already... point where I'm like, I could go either <laughs> yeah, way on this way. one. I'm yeah. gonna, I'll favor The Green Mile, but yeah, kind of either way. The yeah. Green Mile or Fargo? Fargo. Absolutely Fargo. The Green Mile or Targets? Oh, Targets, targets for me. Yeah. Targets. The Green Mile or The Town? The Town. The Town. The Green Mile or M, Fritz Lang's film. M. I'll say M. The Green Mile or Life of the Party. <laughs> you know where I'm going on this uh, one, life, baby. Life of the Party, please. <laughs> life of the Party. The Green Mile or Thelma and Louise, your favorite Ridley Scott movie. Uh, the Green Mile. I'll say Thelma and Louise. All right, here we go. One, one two, two, three. three rock. Paper. Oh, Green Mile takes it. All right. The Green Mile or Creep Show. All right, some Stephen King. Uh, uh, I'd Creep watch Creep Show first. The Green Mile or the Bank Job. Bank oh, Job. Bank Job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that lands Green Mile. It's pretty close to the middle. It's spot two forty nine on our chart, uh, which is a fifty one percent. Two forty nine out of five hundred and six films. It did better on my list. It actually it it landed at three oh seven. I, I re ranked this one, unlike Shawshank, because I felt like it 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 this needed to be 
taken down a peg. Uh, oh. And in fact, it was taken down <laughs> just just a few pegs. I think originally it was like 296, and it came down at 307, um, which is a 79% out of uh, 100, and <laughs> 79% out of 702. Ugh. Idiot. Anyway, <laughs> uh, according to the flick chart algorithm, if I head over to the nextreel.com slash letterbox, it should be a four star. Um, how, how did it fare on your own list? It, uh, it's in spot 756 out of 4,615. So that puts it at about an 84%, which is a four star according to the algorithm. Mm-hmm. And so how does that, what does that do for you for stars? Uh, letterbox, what do you do it? Are you going to put it there? <sighs> I don't think so. I I think I'm okay with this being three and a half with a heart because I still enjoy this film. But I think it's it's one of those films that um, I don't see returning to that often, even mm-hmm. though I enjoy ele- a lot of elements with it. Yeah, I think I'm there too, Andy. I I was thinking of leaning up on on the four star, but the more we talk about it, the more I am filled with uh, flashback rage, and I just. I just think I'm going to leave it at a three and a half star. Are you going to give it a heart, though? I, I am. Yeah, I'll absolutely give it a heart. Okay. A urinary gotcha. tract heart. Ouch. I that's that's crossing two parts of your body that just seem <laughs> it just seems awful when you describe it that way. So thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so that's uh, that's what we do. Uh, that's what we've got here. Now we have one more in our King Darabont series. That we're going to do is, is from 2007, I think. What are we doing next? Uh, yes, we're going to be ending this uh, Stephen King a la Darabont series with his 2007 adaptation of The Mist. What do you think of The Mist? <laughs> I really like it. And this is another example of a film that has been released both in the original theatrical all-color version or the director's preferred version of the black and white. I, have, I, I haven't seen it. You've never seen the movie? I've never seen the movie. I went and I watched the trailer, and it was completely news to me. Interesting. Was it? What, how was it released? Was it part of a collection? It was actually an early collection. It was in the. Uh, it's in Skeleton Crew, which was published oh. in 1985. A collection of short fiction. The story itself was released in 1980 in uh, Dark Forces, an anthology of horror stories. So interesting. Um, yeah. That is one that I should uh, try to uh, check out again if I have a chance. I might have to do the same. Very yeah. exciting. All right, uh, this uh, this has been great. It's been great to explore this movie. I like the the that we're going a little bit back in time, uh, and and that we've almost have the entire Darabont collection knocked out. I know. Uh, it, the completionist in me is very excited to do that last movie. Well, I'll tell you, I am going to watch The Majestic just to check it out because I have never seen that one. So I, I do want to check it out before uh, before we talk about The Mist, just so I can at least have that in my arsenal in case well, I and, need and to talk about it. I, just in terms of, of finishing this thread, the television show is called Haven, loosely based on The Colorado Kid. Ran from 2010 to 2015. Takes place in the coastal town of Haven, Maine. And they all have curses or troubles that uh, trigger horrible things. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Now we know when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. 
As Letterboxd always do it. Okay. <laughs> I've, been, I've been looking forward to this since I found this review earlier this morning because it is something that is totally, totally new to me. And I can't wait to introduce it to you. I hope, I hope you have never seen it before. Oh, that's exciting. My review is from Jay. It is a four-star review. And the review reads, This is Tom Hanks' second best performance after his work in the Carly Rae Jepsen I Really Like You music video. Have you seen the Carly Rae Jepsen I Really Like You music video, Andy? I have. Oh my God, it's amazing. Ah, I so regret that I couldn't introduce this to you. How does Tom Hanks, what universe, what magical Stephen King uh, level mystical force or shine has brought Tom Hanks into this Carly Rae Jepsen musical video? Is she like his niece or something? Please, I need to know all of this. It is the entire music video is Tom Hanks lip syncing her song and walking down the streets. And it's incredible. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how that came to pass. I just, I, I think it was very funny. Oh my God, uh, it's so good. Right, yeah. I uh, mean, don't, don't, just imagine it. This is what I'm saying. I, if you're a fan of Carly Rae Jepsen, you should obviously have already seen this video. If you're not, just imagine what it would be like to have Tom Hanks in like Tom as Tom Hanks, not as a character, walking down the streets of New York and lip syncing bubblegum pop song and (laughs) and that's enough you'll probably have enough of it but it's it's it has delighted me it has lit up my day absolutely with justin bieber it's like a a strange crossing of of worlds that you don't think are are connected yeah yeah absolutely it is the the world's collide they've crossed the streams in this video is what they've done this is what it looks like when you cross the streams you get this video (laughs) If only the Ghostbusters, uh, if only it appeared at the end of Ghostbusters. (laughs) I'll put it in the show notes. There you go. Well, I've got a one-star review by, you know, you went high, I went low. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a one-star by uh, Jack420, who had this to say. Just another effing prison that's three hours, I think they meant prison movie, that's three hours long. And Tom Hanks looks like he ate too much GD Wendy's at the GD Brewery. What? Come on. Uh, he doesn't look that bad. He does not look. He, it was for the part. It's not pre-island castaway that we're looking at here. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, so good. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been hands-down 
the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.